put your policies where your mouth is. Mm-hmm. Um, if you really care about our students and, and our way of learning and thinking and our intellectual contributions to a, uh, an environment, then get rid of the tools that keep us from joining you. So you think the Democratic Party cares about black people? Believe it or not, Rex, I think that tweet is part of the problem. Do you feel like we could have addressed this homeless issue much sooner? If you have to speak a word, make it a good one. Welcome back to The Word once again. I'm Jackie Ray. I am very excited that Jose Moreno from Cal State Long Beach is able to join me today because he's going to really help us break down this current situation with affirmative action. I know that a lot of people are up in arms about this and have strong opinions on both sides. So it's going to be great to see how not only this is going to play out nationally, but locally as well. So if you don't know, almost a decade ago, the Students for Fair Admissions, or SFFA, filed a lawsuit against Harvard University over its race-based admissions policy. And that long, long windy road led to the Supreme Court 6-3 decision that effectively ends affirmative action in college admissions. And I'm, I'm guessing most likely beyond, but that was just a real quick synopsis. Jose, can you kind of dive in a little bit more and tell us how we got here? Oh, we got here at white supremacy. <laughs> First and Damn. foremost, <laughs> uh, we, we, we got here with, um, as a function of, in the foundations of this country, uh, you know, people were racialized, uh, enslaved, imposed on, colonized. Uh, and that's been the, the story uh, of America as we tried to reconcile it with the, with the values that it put on paper. Uh, but how we got here in the recent times is uh, over 50 years ago, uh, the federal government, uh, starting with John F. Kennedy, beginning to use this language in the 60s, um, Lyndon B. Johnson with the Great Societies, uh, pushing to come to some racial reconciliation uh, through both class and racial uh, um, policies, racialized policies, uh, to be more inclusive and equitable. And then Richard Nixon, Richard Nixon, ironically, Republican president, uh, is the one who really pushed federal affirmative action um, and the use of race uh, to create um, restitution uh, and to eradicate and address the deep inequalities that were embedded in the country's founding. Um, it started in the workplace, and then, of course, it went with universities and colleges. And so in contemporary times, that, that it's always been contentious for conservative uh, ideological elements of the country. Uh, late 1970s, University of California, a white, uh, a white male applicant to the, uh, to the dentistry school at UC Davis filed a lawsuit because the university did use quotas and did say it wanted to admit, I believe, at least 17 minority applicants, um, which created a quota. Many people argued that meant 17 slots for minority students and white applicants would get 83 slots. Um, but essentially it argued that everyone should be able to complete for all 100 slots, which we know is just not reality. Um, and so, uh, the court said we cannot use quotas at a federal level, um, in terms of the constitution. And it did say that race can be used in racial, uh, in admissions for colleges and universities, uh, in the interest of diversity. Uh, so it moved from, um, to redress past historical injustices to this is an educational benefit to campus, um, to, to campus educational processes 
And the university is pretty much banked on that um, as the leading argument legally to sustain the use of race. It removed quotas as illegal, but did allow for the use of race as an, as, as an element. Uh, fast forward uh, 2000, early 2000s, another federal case comes in. Gruder and Bollinger, V. Bollinger, the University of Michigan, against this law school. And again, the Supreme Court affirmed then, yes, you can use race as an element uh, in the interest of educational diversity to create a diverse learning environment. Uh, and um, more recently in 2016, the Supreme Court found in Fisher versus the University of Texas uh, that so long as the universities can show that they are using race in a very strict way to improve the educational environment and add to the diverse learning environment, and that it is not a determining factor, that uh, it can continue to use race. Um, but it just overturned itself uh, this past month. Yeah, it's interesting to me when um, when we're thinking about affirmative action and what that means. Um, Historically speaking, white women have benefited more from affirmative action than anyone. So why is this coming to the forefront now when, like you said, it started because of white supremacy? White people, maybe maybe it's misogyny in there somewhere because technically white people are benefiting from this. It's just white women. So why bring this to the forefront now? Yeah, let me add white patriarchal, right? Because uh, they, they go hand in hand in, in this country. Um, and so uh, class gets a little bit more masked on that because of this whole kind of meritocracy argument about class and, and social mobility. But um, certainly the ones, you're right, the ones been well documented for the past 20 years, uh, both in federal government analyses across administrations, um, that the those who have benefited the most from affirmative action are white women, both in the workplace and leadership, and certainly in college and university admissions. One thing that's really important um, to highlight, however, is that when we talk about affirmative action in colleges and universities, we're really talking about a really small number of institutions that are highly selective. Uh, and that's where it matters. It matters when you have 20,000 applicants to Harvard University and you have um, a few thousand slots for students, um, actually less than that. Uh, so as a result, then the stakes become much higher. The, the scrutiny of the applications becomes greater. Uh, and um, what we see is that this, these cases really are relevant to those kind of institutions. Um, states like Michigan, uh, in our selective public universities like Michigan uh, and California and Florida and Washington, state of Washington, affirmative action was outlawed in the late 1990s through voter referendum. Uh, so we haven't had affirmative action in California for over what is it now going on 30 years, uh, 28 years. And that's really important. Um, that's really important because people still say in California that we use affirmative action. And that's why we have so many black and brown students, at Long, well, brown students at Long Beach, not as many black students as we used to actually. Um, and that we see some level of black and brownness in parts of the UC. And, um, and that's just not the case. Affirmative action has not been in place in California since 1996. Uh, but most definitely white women have benefited the most. Um, and what we see in particular education is, um, and economics is once one generation can, um, uh, can meet the threshold, both educationally, economically, then their, their children have a much likelier likelihood of success. Um, and we certainly have seen that with white women. Um, absolutely have seen that. Um, we are not quite seeing it yet with, uh, African American, Latino, indigenous, um, communities quite yet because the, the, the critical mass has been so small over the decades that even though affirmative action was in place, the numbers um, 
of those who are admitted, we're talking very small numbers. Um, at Harvard, for example, 9% of its undergraduates are African-American. So you're talking about hundreds, a couple hundred. Um, at Cal State Long Beach, we have 4% of our students are African-American students. So again, so we're talking hundreds. Um, so the numbers are so small that it's, that it's been difficult to make a, a true social impact. With white women, they're a high proportion of, the, of society. And so as they benefited, they were able to replicate themselves, as we say, educationally and economically. It seems like the goal was to kind of force a level of colorblindness. Um, I, I, I wonder how much you have to overlook the historical and current truths of our nation if you're saying, hey, this isn't needed. Because I saw a quote from Chief Justice John Roberts, and he said that he, he said, quote, many universities have for far too long wrongly concluded that uh, touchstones of an individual's identity is not challenges best as skills built or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. And I feel like what he's saying is that we're all human, we're all equal, and that's great in a utopia, but America is not anywhere close to that. So as black and brown Americans, specifically black Americans, because like you said, we're seeing our numbers reduce across the board in a lot of areas, what should be our next step? What should our be our thinking when we see kind of this anti-Black movement across the country taking place? Well, I'll tell you, it'll be a matter of maybe a, a decade or so, um, and we start seeing rumblings of it in California, where um, white families are going to want affirmative action. <laughs> uh, because th th they've been fed this lie, that this, this myth uh, of meritocracy based on test scores, uh, based on one's own bootstraps, uh, and certainly in these most selective colleges, uh, what we see, and in fact, when private high schools, uh, as well as some private schools have put inordinate amount of influence on exams, um, Asian, uh, a, a subgroup of Asian American students fare much better on those measures than white students. And so there are examples across the country of white families demanding greater equity. <laughs> Why are there so many Asians now in our AP classes and not as many white students, right? So um, so they should be careful what they ask for. And I would say that the, the historians and, and, and those who have analyzed affirmative action, um, both formal as recognized since the early 70s in the United States, but informal, right? Affirmative action has, has always existed. There were always actions to affirm that only white men can vote, that only white property owning men can vote. That's affirmative action. That's only allowing some uh, to benefit from a society and not others, or at least providing preference. So uh, those of us who observed that historical trajectory um, would actually interpret John Roberts' interpretation as just um, woefully ignorant uh, at best, uh, and uh, maliciously racialized at, um, at worst. Uh, that is that um, the idea that um, race we know is not an actual thing. It's not a biological thing. Um, uh, it is a social construction. And so for, for anyone in a racialized society to say that affirmative action was about creating a colorblind society, I don't think is being, being disingenuous or if not ignorant of history. Um, Affirmative action was a recognition that we are color conscious. We, we, we are as a, as a species. We've become that because of the social 
signifiers and categorizations we've created uh, through our social institutions. So to say in a matter of a decade, two decades, three decades, four decades, we're going to no longer be color conscious is just not, um, is just not based in reality. Uh, I think as, um, just as Jackson said, um, what the reality is, is that we are color conscious and by, by being explicit about it, we can, um, manage it in the way that is about inclusion and positive engagement with one another, uh, understanding our unique experiences in the world in racialized societies, not just the U.S., but globally. Um, and so to ignore that as, as a factor is, uh, again, disingenuous at best. So I want to ask you a personal question. I know that we've kind of been doing the, the facts and breaking this down, but we went from having President Barack Obama in office and the narrative was, oh, see, America's not racist. How could we be racist? We've got a black president. And then like the day he was out of office, it's like, just kidding. We want to show you how racist we really are. How how did we go so quickly from let's be let's say we're not a racist society to let's move to even figure out ways that we can remove the history that proves who we are as a society and just kind of gloss over the truth of our nation. Well, uh, I do tend to remind folks that then candidate Barack Obama distanced himself from his pastor of 20 years because it was racialized, emphasized heavily in his campaign, uh, his white family, uh, his white descendancy. Absolutely. Um, and, and so that was all, and, and I didn't begrudge him for that, that he was throwing us his whole self, which was, which is beautiful. But, um, in politics, you do that to send messages to alleviate people's nerves and concerns about you, right? So, um, so in that sense, uh, one could say he was cynical, others could say he was showing his full self, but he was showing America its full self. Um, that they, they were comfortable with someone that may not have looked just like them, but that, that looked like they may have a history like them, that they, like he could relate to them, which is always the, the key in politics to getting people to believe that they can relate to you. Uh, so, um, from that standpoint, America then, I think voters, um, and, and I, and I, this is something we talk a lot about in our ethnic studies programs is we don't, um, engage much in, in both our theoretical and practical work about people being racist. Um, you gotta have power to be racist in, in the way that we think of, um, r- racial theory formation and its impact. Um, as, uh, Dr. Malona Karenga, chair of Africana studies, uh, notes, uh, in his foundational lectures, uh, he says, you know, for, for you not to like me because of the color of my skin or the accent in my, in my, in my, in, in my discourse or the way I dress or whatnot, that's prejudice. That's your problem, not mine. If you become the police chief, that's not my problem. <laughs> right? That's now a systemic social problem because your prejudices now get transformed into public policy to right. get into power. So in that sense, um, what we saw with the election of President Obama is um, we imposed a lot of projection onto him that he was going to deliver freedom, so to speak, and that his election signified freedom. But it wasn't. It was just another step. It was another step towards that. Uh, and we know that he always had to medi- mediate himself um, because of the concern of a majority backlash, which is why at the very end of his tenure, we got the angry, angry Obama interpreter. Uh, with the peel stitch, right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so that was cool. But that, uh, I guess to, to get to your, 
to your question, we're not there yet. I don't know when we can get there. Um, in 2000 and in the early 2000s, when the Supreme Court decided in Grutter v. Bollinger, Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman Supreme Court justice, which again is another part of our history, when when she was appointed, it was very explicit. We are going to appoint a woman. We need a woman on the Supreme Court. That was Republicans who did that very explicitly. Right. And there was no mass backlash. But the moment that Joe Biden says, I'm going to appoint a black woman, it's like there's this backlash, right? Um, but that Justice Saturday O'Connor, um, in agreeing with the court opinion that diversity, race in the interest of educational diversity in the learning environment is uh, compelling, uh, said that he hopes that within 25 years, we will no longer need to use race because it'll be a self-fulfilling cycle. Well, we are now about 25 years later, and we're seeing the, the situation just as dire. Um, for, for many of us who do this from a policy and legal analysis standpoint, um, there is one thing that is of concern about the liberal side of this conversation with universities, is at the end of the day, uh, universities do choose their own admissions process. The Supreme Court doesn't tell you how you're supposed to select people. It just tell it is just not telling them more explicitly how you cannot. So uh, Justice Scalia, one of the most conservative justices in contemporary times, famously said and asked a question to the University of Michigan in the law school admissions case. The the the, the law school, similar to what Harvard and North Carolina, University of North Carolina used in this more recent case, they use data to show like, look, if we don't if we can't use race as a factor, we're gonna plummet in black enrollments, we're gonna plummet in Latino Latinx enrollments and um and pretend, and but they didn't highlight they may plummet in enrollments of women in STEM in certain fields of STEM, for example. That's right. why white women might struggle the most. They didn't highlight that for some curious reason. Um but what what Alito said is well what why why would your admissions plummet just by not being able to use race? And they said, well, because African-American Latino students historically score lower on SATs, the law school LSATs. And Scalia said, then stop using those, those measures. If those are the measures that keep black and brown students out and keep you from admitting the kind of learning, uh, race, um, diverse cultural learning environments that you're seeking, if it's that important to stop using the tools that keep you from attaining it. Why do you ask us to allow you to use something that is unconstitutional if you're choosing to use test scores that keep you from that goal? It was a beautiful question, although I disagree with him on so many other fronts, but the university had no answer to that. Um, so in that sense, to me, the universities, elite universities, have wanted their cake and eat it too. They want to sustain their metrics that have kept them exclusive, segregated economically, geographically. Um, that sustain donor bases through legacy admissions, uh, and of course the donors themselves who name buildings after themselves so they can get the kids admitted. Uh, so, um, those are the parts that I think are left moving forward. Uh, Supreme Court's not gonna un- turn itself over on this case in any, in the near future until there's a complete turnover of the Supreme Court and mon- the majority are still quite young. So I think it's incumbent upon us to now turn to our universities and say, okay, um, you know, it took California 25 years to realize in the UC system, hey, maybe if we stop using the SAT, uh, we won't, we won't have this need to, to, um, to depend on using race as a factor. It took them 25 years. So 
so what I've said to folks across the country in this question is, you know, hopefully you'll learn from California. What we're doing now should have been done 25 years ago. Um, it's never going to make up for it completely, but stop using the tools that keep us out. I think sometimes I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, when you say we haven't had affirmative action here for 30 years, I think sometimes specifically in SoCal, we feel we see these kinds of things happen in our country. We go, oh, yeah, that's over there. There's nothing to do with this. We're good over here. I feel like that's kind of setting ourselves up for something in the future. Do you think that Californians really need to keep in tune to what's going on across our nation? Well, in many ways, uh, yes. I mean, it's often said California is the bellwether for the nation. What happens here ends up happening. And we see that. We see that with this case, for example. California got ahead uh, of its, of this um, elusive goal of colorblind societies, which, again, is, is, a, mis- is a misnomer and uh, disingenuous at best, um, and, and pushed for uh, African-American president of the University of California region, right? Um, who pushed for uh, this idea of getting rid of race in the UC system. And we saw a, a deleterious impact on black and brown enrollment that we're still recovering from. Uh, so, so the idea that what happens in California is going to hit the nation is certainly playing out in this regard. Uh, certainly on immigration, we're seeing that play out for sure. Uh, and certainly as it comes to uh, race conscious inclusive policy. Uh, California, I think, too often buys into its own media and its own coverage as being the liberal state. We're not Florida. We're not Texas. And I think too often we we forget that we are the state that passed Prop 187, right? Which basically said we're gonna we're gonna kick children out of public school who can't show that they are uh, authorized to be in this country. Right. Um, this is the same state that decided to get rid of bilingual education, the same state that when it had the chance just five years ago to overturn the affirmative action ban, said no. Right. Um, so, um, and the same state that ignores the plight of um, marginal, economically marginalized and suppressed black communities. Um, so it, it just, um, I wouldn't say California is, it's better. But too often in being progressive um, or seeing myself as more the progressive side of the, of the conversation, um, it seems that we, it becomes a crutch. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, California, we're good. We're good. No. I mean, Long Beach is a great example. I mean, dude, I mean, black enrollments have been decreasing for over a decade uh, at Cal State Long Beach. Long Beach has made its efforts. Um, and our schools are still struggling on how to best engage um, young black scholars um, and brown scholars and Southeast Asian scholars and indigenous scholars. And we're, wait, wait, this is Long Beach. We're not in Vermont. We're not Iowa. Why are, why are we at 4% African-American enrollment when we're in Long Beach, right? Snoop Dogg territory. Right. <laughs> we're just down the street. We're just down the street, man. Uh, and then, of course, we're Latinos. I mean, Long Beach is 50% Latino now, but a reminder that 78% of Compton Unified is Latino now, and mm-hmm. 70% of Long Beach Unified is Latino. So the idea that, oh, well, we're doing really well with Latinos, well, we're doing better, but we're not where, where our local demography is, not fully. Uh, we're closer. And again, with African-American enrollment. And then not to speak of faculty. That's the other piece, Jackie, that I think is going to be something that we're going to feel for several decades is 
the thing about the, the affirmative action case, it doesn't impact Cal State Long Beach. It doesn't impact the UCs, you know, and other places. But because these 50, it's a, we're really talking about 50 to 60 colleges, universities. However, they disproportionately are the ones who produce presidents and senators right. and congressmen and CEOs and, you know, what we call power and elite in society. So until that gets interrupted, which I would love to see, um, then what we're going to see is um, basically a continued segregation of the concentration of leadership and power in this country, economic and political. That's, I think, the real consequence here. Mm-hmm. And when you look at, uh, you mentioned President Obama, you look at any of African-American and many of the Latino congressional, senatorial, and uh, economic leaders, they come from these schools. Right. So until that ends uh, or gets interrupted, um, we're going to continue to struggle um, with, with true voices in those spaces. You know, sometimes I, when I'm talking to the Black community, a lot of times I tell them that I, one of our biggest problems as a community is we continue to look outward um, as if we don't know how we're perceived outward. And I think at some point we really have to kind of invest in our own universities. You know, historically Black colleges, a lot of them are state colleges, but they're not funded properly. I think those are demands that we could make. Um, here in Long Beach, I've talked to more Black people than I can count that say, you know, Long Beach Unified School District is horribly racist, horribly racist but they don't want to speak out about that because they think it'll make it worse for their kids. And these people are third generation Black people that feel like this is what I had to go through. And when I said anything about it, it made it worse for me. So there's a level of historical trauma that people are dealing with, the fear of making it worse for their children. But ultimately, I think that fear is also making it harder for the future generation as well. So at what point do people have to really kind of stand up and say, you know what, I got to fix this myself, at least in my little corner of the world? Um, was it Margaret Mead that said, in fact, that's the only thing that's ever changed the world mm-hmm. uh, is when a small group of conscientious um, people decide to stand up uh, together. Um, yeah, you, one of the things that we that I've seen in Long Beach, and I've been at the university about 18 years now, lived in Long Beach four years before that. Um, and my wife grew up in Long Beach, uh, is uh, that when it comes to to education, what we've seen, for better or worse, is uh, a lot of Black families will um, connect their kids to HBCUs. Mm -hmm. So HBCUs actually come to many of Long Beach Unified college fairs. And they're smart because they're saying, we're going to go where people are. And and I think uh, for HBCUs in particular, since they're concentrated in the in the east, southeast, south, um, is hey, we want to bring some legacy families, right? Um, legacy Black families that have migrated west uh, because that's good for their educational environment. I mean, to right. have African American students from the from the West Coast to study in North Carolina and South Carolina um, at Howard, uh, and and to engage and interact with African American students who grew up in Michigan, who grew up in Florida, that's that's the value of diversity overall. So when folks um, folks often forget that. So um, so we've seen that. And but to your point, um, voice is really important. And I I think we're experiencing this multiple communities together that we think that as we elect people that look like ourselves, <laughs> that that's going to be the, the the pathway to freedom, as we say. <laughs> um, but I you know I've been in politics myself, and I've just learned that. The 
the way the electoral pathway means you have to give up so much of what you want, would love to do that you end up being more concerned about staying there and doing a little bit than not getting there at all, as if that's the end all be all. Um, so, so ultimately the question I was coming back, well, if, if, if black folks want better conditions, they gotta, they gotta vote. If Latinos want more, they gotta vote. And unfortunately we now have seen, um, the system kind of correct itself and, uh, folks are getting elected are more culturally aligned with the status quo. Um, and so they look after their kids, um, and their circle, um, and not so much after policies that look after, um, what they're supposed to reflect. I'm just going to move on to my next point <laughs> before I get in trouble on that one. So, <laughs> but, um, when, when you really think about affirmative action specifically, um, is this a, is this a telltale sign of, of more to come? Uh, yes. I mean, it's a complete dismantling of the great society of the sixties. I mean, it's, an, it's been an ongoing, uh, ideological project since the early seventies. It's been well researched and documented, um, since the time of Nixon, um, you know, the silent majority, this whole kind of, um, and it's, and now it's eating itself. Right. So the the sad part of this is and uh, Lonnie Guineer, who was who was put forward by, I think, uh, President Clinton to be the to head of civil rights division uh, of the DOJ. And then he pulled her nomination when Republicans went after her scholarship, which was mm-hmm. critical race theory and really powerful, powerful legal um, framework. Um, he, um, along with some other scholars, Begins to really highlight this question of canaries uh, in the coal mine, and so she, she would make the argument uh, in her scholarship, along with others, that a lot of these social policies that, on at face value, um, benefit African American or Latino or low income people or women, uh, Indigenous people, that um, that eventually we have to be really careful because um, when when they begin to benefit, we actually see a true benefit to all of society. Right. Um, but when we see people struggling, the first ones that are put out to the edge of the struggle are racialized, minoritized people or poor people, and they become canaries in the coal mine. So how far can we go? So for a couple of examples, one, you know, in the drug war, we didn't give a crap about crack uh, and what it was doing to young people and families and whatnot until cocaine, powder cocaine started to hit and crack started to hit for white folks. But even then, middle class white folks, right? Um, and then with high school dropouts, which was a crisis in the 80s and 90s, uh, has been historically for racially minoritized communities. Uh, but we started to see Time Magazine, Newsweek, and these national mainstream media outlets start to talk about white dropout rates. And then all of a sudden, it became this huge emphasis, we have to prevent high school dropouts. So racially minoritized people, economically oppressed folks, highly gendered people are often the canaries in the coal mine. So when you ask, is this what we're going to coming forward? Yes. Yes. And the, the tragedy is that the ones who get hurt the most um, are, of course, those who've historically been on the margins. But in addition, is white folks themselves, right? right. Um, white folks themselves. And that's what I think is so narrow and um, uh, is so wrong um, about this decision that's been courted. We could argue whether we still need um, racially restitutive policies. I would argue we still do, absolutely. But at the very least, the idea that 
a diverse learning environment that is made up of people from different racialized backgrounds uh, and cultural experiences and geographies is critical to the learning. Um, for them to say that that's not enough anymore, because the, the court in Baki versus UC, uh, the University of California in 1978 said, you know, that's compelling enough. They're willing to say, yeah, it pushes on the Constitution, but it's such a compelling state interest that that we'll have to live with it, right? Uh, but just be really careful with it. Um, and that's the kind of compromise they came to. And so for this court to say that's no longer compelling enough, that a racially diverse learning environment um, is not compelling enough, um, it, it just it should um, be cause for concern. Again, canaries in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. because we're concerned about many of the advances people are making, including white women. You know, you, you said something that really kind of resonated with me because I've always been one of those people to say, you know what, you have to vote local. If you don't vote in any other election, your local election matters the most. And since being with the Long Beach Post and working alongside our, our political reporter, Jason Ruiz, I, I think my mindset has changed a little bit on that. And I feel like local politics is more about getting to the next level in their political career than it is about bettering the lives of people in the local community. So before we get out of here, can I get your personal opinion on that thought process? <laughs> that's, that's, that's been my personal experience. You know, I was on a school board that I was on city council in Anaheim. And so that's what I saw. We, we often talk about these local positions as being stepping stones. Uh, certainly, I saw that. And uh, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Uh, in Anaheim, Disney, the Disney Corporation is huge. It's a company mm-hmm. town. Um, in lobby to support and it's you know so um but in anaheim disney is it and so they fund elect local elections but if you we fought hard there under voting rights laws to change the system to district based elections long beach has had that for a long time it used to be at large um so so we changed the districts and so we were able to get um some community-based candidates to get elected without big money that was one of them um however what we started to see is other quote-unquote community-based candidates start to come up and get heavily funded by the corporation and the resort industry. Uh, and and we couldn't make sense of why are you afraid to speak out against, live, you know, or for living wages, for benefits for resort workers, um, to support required affordable housing development. Um, why are you not speaking to that? And of course, police, <laughs> right? And what, what we learned is that actually many of these folks, if you can win locally with not a lot of money, you can do it if, if you really, really work with your volunteers, your neighborhood. But what's, what's really hard and money really matters is when you want to be in the assembly uh. or a county supervisor, then you need big money. So that's where we saw Disney um, or the, the, the huge financial interest. Um, they, they would. And I would talk to friends who would, they would, colleagues. Conversations we had about, hey, we know you, ha- we know you have a really bright future. If you keep it cool here, right, we could be really helpful to get you there. And that's where, that's where the game really starts to get played that way. So it's not so much that they don't believe in the local policies; uh, they just won't fight for them because they have higher aspirations. So their ambitions limit their their willingness to to make the wrong people angry. And that's just really, and I see that in most municipalities. Tell me something you are optimistic about that that could potentially be a political change we might see in the future. No, the blinders are off. I'm totally optimistic about that. I mean, that's a, good. As yeah. A, as a as a professor and one who wants to engage in community around authentic truth, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the truth. This this is the truth. Um, so um, what what I'm what I'm worried about is the messaging that we that nationally affirmative action is going to completely undermine black and brown excellence in education and progress. Again, it's fifty to sixty colleges. It, it undermines our direct access to power and elite spaces. But we could create those for ourselves. We should be creating those for ourselves. We've, we've, we've done it before. We can do it again. Uh, we shouldn't just see um, that the light of the end of the tunnel is where white folks are. That, that right. can't be our path to freedom uh, in that in that regard. So in that sense, I'm more optimistic about how we engage with people about, hey, um, education uh, is is best had through a practice of freedom. Mm-hmm. And yes, that means economic prosperity for yourself, mobility, but it's also about um, in an environment that respects you and where you can learn to respect others. And so if those places choose not to change themselves, to admit more uh, and create more opportunities in the absence of the Supreme Court ruling, um, then I wouldn't advise students to go there. Right. Um, come to Cal State Long Beach. There you go. Right here. Uh, so I'm optimistic in that regard. I'm I'm concerned that the messaging is that black and brown kids will hear I can't go to college, uh, and that's just not the case. That that's just mm-hmm. not the case. You just can't go where those folks are, uh, or it's more difficult, I should say. Um, but let's. Um, I'm optimistic that now we can say those universities. Well, put your put your policies where your mouth is. Mm-hmm. Um, if you really care about our students and and our way of learning and thinking and our intellectual contributions to a, uh, an environment then get rid of the tools that keep us from joining you. Otherwise, you didn't really want us. You just wanted to say that you cared. So I'm optimistic about that. Yes, Jose, with the grand opening, grand closing. You started this great. You ended it great. I appreciate you so, so much for coming on the show. Definitely going to put you in my Rolodex and have you back on several times more as things in our country change. And again, I appreciate you for taking the time to listen. Thank you guys for listening and watching this podcast. I'm Jackie Ray. And remember, if you have to speak a word, Make it a good one. We'll see you next time.